This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Auto successes. Imperiled check mares. Valhalla Cat. And Nicholas Rorick. Choose your hero. Push your luck. Build colossal combos. If you believe that games should have dwarves, the dwarves should roll dice, and the true camaraderie is hollering cheers and sharing a beer, then Dice Miner is for you. Dice Miner is a tabletop game about drafting the dice you covet, adding them to your hoard, and pushing your luck to score the most points. Published and kickstarted by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll a bag full of custom dice down a 3D mountain, then take turns drafting them off. Build straights to score. Collect the most treasure, then double your profit. Avoid dragons and cave-ins or hoard tools to protect yourself. Reroll dice to push your luck. And don't forget the beer. Find Dice Miner on Kickstarter beginning May 26th or go to atlas-games.com backslash Dice Miner to sign up for a launch email in advance. Dice Miner, because every gamer loves dice. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, Robin, you don't need to roll those dice. Uh, you've automatically eaten those Doritos as a skilled and expert Dorito eater. Uh, Peter Frampton certainly doesn't need to roll to succeed at winning our hearts or coming alive. And the miniatures, well, I guess we will have to have a combat with the miniatures. Gosh, Robin, if only there was some handy way for me to know when I can just declare an auto success and move ahead with the narrative. Gosh, if only there were a podcast that dared to grapple and not with grappling rules, God forbid, but with the concept of the auto success. Robin, what do you think? Now, there aren't going to be any hard lines here. We're going to talk not about the science of when to declare an auto success, but rather the art, Uh, because I think we're accustomed uh, well, first of all, I think in the original uh, days of the hobby, the thought was, at least among a lot of people, that uh, if you had a skill and you did something with that skill, you had to roll for it. Yep. So that uh, brought about a spate of people getting in their car to drive up to the old mill and the GM makes them roll a drive check just to see if they succeed in regular old driving. And so that uh, along came the first sort of GM's rule of thumb, which is, you might very well have have a skill and you might have a number attached to that skill, but if you're just doing something ordinary and zero risk, you do not have to roll to do that uh, because uh, it is dumb to have the uh, investigators drive into the ditch in their Studebaker at the uh, beginning of the adventure for no uh, reason whatsoever. So uh, Now, the, the mere fact that something is dumb, Robin, does not mean it was not done over and over and over and over again for decades. Yes, and if something was done <laughs> over and over again for decades, someone somewhere is still doing it. And uh, if we were uh, having Origins and Gen Con in person this year, someone would be doing it at Origins and Gen Con. Um, yep. But... By and large, uh, that's that's an old thought as as to GMing technology. Mm-hmm. More recently, we have had the idea that you should fail forward, so that uh, when you're doing something that is seems difficult enough in order to necessitate a role, that if you fail, failure never stops the plot. And I mentioned that just in order to mention it so that people don't ask me why I didn't, uh, because it's not quite mm-hmm. what I'm talking about here. Right. And so the two versions of uh, fail forward are you do drive the car into the ditch, presumably when there is some tension involved in the ditch. But in the ditch, there is something interesting that can possibly happen uh, and something that moves the story forward. The driving into the ditch doesn't stop you. And then secondly, there's success at a cost, which is that in this instance, I suppose that you uh, you don't drive into the ditch, but you do get some uh, dirt on your pants and and therefore you uh, look all grubby and weird uh, when you show up at the old mill and the fastidious mill owner can therefore mock you for it. Uh, but in both of those cases, the, the story has continued. What I want to talk about, though, is 
uh, situations where it should be kind of difficult. You can imagine a situation where failure would be interesting, but you still don't do it. And so in what circumstances do you just decide as GM? Uh, and sometimes we do this by uh, sort of misdirection, by just making the difficulty of the role really low, uh, which works in systems where there is a difficulty and in which you have no overt cost. Yeah, or, and, and in where it's not just a percentage number on your sheet. <laughs> yes. So if it's a percentage number on your sheet, you're not going to be able to hide it. If it's gumshoe and you're spending general ability points, uh, again, you're not going to be able to uh, hide the fact that it was really an auto success with a really low difficulty number uh, because you have to let it go. And why are you hiding this fact from the player's Anyway, and so I was put in mind of this. I'm working on a play-by-clip uh, series on YouTube with our, our boon companion, uh, uh, Gar Hanrahan. And I uh, came to an instance where at the beginning of the uh, adventure, he does something athletic and it seems heroic. And you can imagine a, a success with uh, cost or you can imagine uh, an interesting thing that would happen if he failed. But in either of those instances, it would immediately at the beginning of the adventure, be clown his character if he were to fail to do this thing. Uh, so right. it would make sense in the narrative, especially since if you're using the test of, well, it is a difficult action, that if he attempted it later on in the narrative, you very well might allow to fail. But at this particular point in the story, uh, when you're just introducing him, uh, it makes his character look like a bumbler, like a fool, and doesn't particularly add anything. So in that case, I just decided by decree, no, no, you succeed in doing that. Uh, it leads to something interesting and it uh, protects the character, as they say in Hollywood screenwriting jargon when they're talking about iconic heroes, is that I guess another possible way of looking at this, a, a yardstick, if you will, is would Kirk fail at this? Would Bond fail at this? Right. And if the answer is no, and uh, the premise of your uh, series is not that you have sort of uh, bumbling fools or Tyro heroes. You know, Frodo might fail at that. Yeah. But uh, if you're not doing a Frodo-like character, if you're doing a standard uh, sort of heroic or iconic character, uh, throw them some bones every so often, especially at the start. Yeah. Um, the other example that we should probably mention to avoid being uh, written in about is when trying to succeed would waste everyone's valuable time. And this is where the famous take 20 uh, rule came from in D&D, is that rather than sit there and wait for people to pixel bitch every single graph paper square in the entire corridor, you could say, if you have that kind of time being a thief, you can just take 20. That means you automatically get a, a, a 20 on the die because you took a, a, enough time to be certain Dead certain there are no secret doors. Just walk down the corridor. The bugbears are getting bored. And that is a version of the dramatic thing, but it inverts the question of does it hose the characters to does it hose the momentum? Does it hose pacing? And I guess that's the other time that you ask that question is, you know, what does uh, the character need uh, to move forward and uh, be a viable part of the story? And what does the story need to move forward and be uh, uh, interesting as opposed to tiresome? And that includes, you know, don't roll for routine drive checks, but it also is sort of the thinking, I guess, behind uh, failing forward is that when you have a opportunity to make the story interesting, uh, you should take it regardless of uh, the dice. The dice merely exist to tell you what kind of interesting the story becomes. So given those two constraints, I suppose the third reason to do an auto success would be because it is something that is just you're, you're, you're attempting to do it rather than establish a fact about the character or, or a feeling in the, in the story. You're attempting to establish something about the world, which is, you know, maybe it's always super easy to shoot that first stormtrooper. 
And it's not about making your character look good. Everyone can shoot a stormtrooper. It's about letting people know that the stormtroopers narratively are there to be bowled over on your way to something exciting. Um, so if everyone gets a free kill of a hobgoblin, then that lets you know, okay, hobgoblins are just sort of, um, they're, they're not quite scenery because, you know, the ones that survive can hit you with their wicked little axes. But, uh, by and large, they are present. Uh, in a descriptive rather than a delaying uh, right. uh, manner. And, and the, right? the distinction to tease out there is between world logic, a thing that the characters are aware of, and literary conceit, a, a practice that uh, you and the players are using in order to uh, emulate genre or uh, make the uh, evening more fun or otherwise fall under the broader previously proposed umbrella of don't be tiresome. So, if it is known in the world that the first kobold, uh, it, it, that everybody can kill one kobold and they talk about it and that's a thing, that's actually sort of a weird world. Um, and mostly what yeah. you're doing is that you're not establishing the reality of the Star Wars universe that uh, stormtroopers are actually uh, mooks, that they're extremely vulnerable, because in the Star Wars universe, nobody talks about them that way, right? You don't see Han and Luke go, that's ah, just a bunch of stormtroopers. We can easily mow these guys down. They are afraid of the stormtroopers, and they act accordingly, and they protect themselves, and they don't uh, swagger about. An another sort of example of people taking a game conceit and pretending that it is a fact about the world is in various editions of D&D, they've, they've had house cats that can do one to three damage, meaning that in mm -hmm. first edition D&D, a house cat can kill you. <laughs> yeah. And although house cats can kill you. Absolutely. But usually they have to apply more stealth, you know, a frontal at attack. They're not going right. to claw you to death. No, they're, they're going to uh, lie right there right. on the stairs. And, and so you may need to attend to the issue of making sure that the uh, players understand that what they're experiencing when they get an auto success is that they have actually been good and skillful and uh, shown their heroic nature. Not that just this is something any boob can do, but rather, again, you're Kirk, you're, you're Bond, right? The, the average person in the Star Wars universe can't reliably uh, shoot down a stormtrooper, but Han Solo can because he's far from being an average person uh, in the Star Wars universe. So what that sort of side point gets us back to is the idea that you are deciding things not so much here in this instance on the question of what is possible in the world, but what is engaging and fun and exciting uh, in the narrative. So another reason that you might decide to give an auto success once uh, your character is properly established as being uh, appropriately badass and everything, you're not worried about uh, protecting them in that way. And it's okay if they occasionally fail. Uh, however, you might uh, run into a situation where there's just a string of bum luck where all of the players are starting to feel discouraged because they've had a bunch of setbacks. And those setbacks might have been failures in uh, literally rolling the die and, and coming up as, as failures, or they might have been uh, tough emotional situations, right? That the character you played, uh, the king badgered them a lot and you expected them to come back at you, but they just got bummed out that the king was mean to them or uh, they may be discouraged. Because they've learned from all the other games that attacking the king means they have to be uh, hunted across the length yes, and breadth and of the land. They finally discovered that and they're, they're <laughs> depressed about it. Or the room is kind of bummed out because the players have been kind of at each other and unable to come to an agreement and you want to get things moving. And so in those sort of emotional situations, you're like a, uh, a writer of fiction or a director of a film, you are painting with emotions just as much, if not more so, than deciding what things are happening in your simulation. And so you might well decide that after the embarrassing chat with the, uh, with the king and they go and they finally plan their, uh, their stealth attempt, you just go, okay, you've successfully stealthed into the chancellor's chambers. Now, what do you do? And so uh, that's a nice surprise. It's a nice sort of jolt of pacing. If you can sort of move uh, the players suddenly into the narrative, I think they find that exciting, although sometimes disconcerting because they want to control every little jot and tittle of the pacing, but that's a whole other segment. Um, and so uh, look for a way to bring up the mood with a, with a handy auto success that, of course, gets, as we know, that you 
you don't just fail forward, you also succeed forward into further danger and interesting things. Mm -hmm. And now you're in the chancellor's room and that's actually more exciting than uh, 10 minutes of stealthing around at this point, given what's already happened in the storyline. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it is, you know, the same party is going to get, or, or different parties are going to get different results uh, emotionally, uh, pacing wise, whatever. Some parties, they're like, well, at least we don't have to deal with stupid people anymore. We're on our strong ground with stealthing. And they are kind of looking forward to the, the Zen of the stealth mode. Others are like, we just want to get to the fireworks factory. Uh, we're sick that we have to make all these stupid stealth rolls. Uh, someone's always going to screw it up and roll a one and, and wreck everything for everybody. And that's the party that maybe you give that little, as you say, emotional boost to and you hop them into the, into the chancellor's room. And even if you do it, you can go to all of the, um, uh, player characters and you can say narrate. One, one scene of your stealthing into the, into the chancellor's room. And then the character who, who would roll the one either because they're a giant, uh, you know, half ogre or because, uh, their, their player always, uh, rolls a one. Uh, that's the guy that you say, why, um, uh, uh, how, uh, your half ogre almost brought down, uh, uh, the guards, but then you did something that, uh, covered your tracks. What was it? And you let them play into the sort of concept of their character. And have a little uh, lighthearted moment with it without it actually, you know, starting a fight scene too early or derailing the the larger story that everyone, including you, wants to get to. Right. And I guess that's sort of, you know, zeroth level GMing is make sure that the story the players want to tell and the story that you want to tell at least rhyme. Right. I mean, if if what you really wanted <laughs> was was a was a um uh, grim and gritty uh exploration of medieval security systems and the players wanted to steal emeralds some something's going to give there and you and you're going to have to make a uh, uh, uh some kind of a compromise the faster you figure that out the better and i and i think that you can use those that intuition of what do i want what do the players want what do the characters want and giving into any of those is a reason to auto success, assuming that uh, at the moment that agenda should be moving forward. Right. And just to amplify a, a point that you made previously, uh, don't use auto success if that's going to cheat the player of their sense of earned success, right? That some players are super into rolling for things and really want to do it uh, and uh, are willing to uh, suffer more failures because they enjoy the successes more. So read the room as to whether... Uh, as you already uh, kind of suggested, but I want to underline that if they're look, super looking forward to a bunch of stealthing, do a bunch of stealthing. If they're going, oh, now we have to stealth into the chancellor. Oh, okay, fine. That's when you do the, uh, the auto success. So you let them to get past something that they find uh, an annoying and irritating chore uh, rather than the, the meat of the uh, story. And, and at that point, I think it's time for us to uh, successfully head through this commercial to whatever waits on the other side. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc, Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. 
or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgrainepress.com slash shop. The retinal scan that we had to undergo before listening to this segment and also the all the stacks of old paperwork because uh, this particular intelligence agency hasn't quite gone digital because they know the dangers of going digital tell us that we are in the tradecraft hut. And uh, Ken, even though uh, the world is upside down right now, the world of espionage and spying and special operations has not calmed down very much. And uh, that brings us to a recent headline uh, in which several uh, Czech mayors have gone into hiding because they believe that the FSB or perhaps some other apparatus of the Russian state is trying to knock them off. And you have uh, checked out the dossier on this and you're here to tell us about it. Yeah, apparently, according to a Czech uh, investigative periodical, a alleged assassin arrives from Russia uh, with a suitcase or a briefcase full of ricin poison and is uh, met by a uh, Russian diplomat and brought into the Russian embassy uh, in Prague. And the notion is that uh, he is going to go out and start poisoning mayors who have in one way or another ticked off the Russians. And this seems to have been based on a leak by the BIS, the uh, Security Information Service in Czech Republic. And the Russians, of course, have denied it angrily and said, why would you assume we would do such a thing just because we poison a bunch of our ex-agents and Russian dissidents and random strangers on the street to keep our poisoning hand in? Why would we poison yeah, a bunch sure of Sure, we bought a whole bunch of poison. Sure, we're overstocked. Arguably, that poison must go, go, go. But... Why would we attack Czech mayors specifically? Yeah, why, why, why? You point to one reason. And, of course, the BBC uh, points to one reason, as did, uh, one assumes, the Czech investigative journal, which probably wrote it in Czech, so I, I can't do anything about that. But the three targeted mayors, all of whom have been brought into hiding, are Zdenek Hrib, who is the mayor of Prague. Uh, he is a member of the Pirate Party. And he renamed the street outside the Russian embassy uh, after a Russian dissident, uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, who was, in fairness, not poisoned, except by uh, lead because he was shot in the back five times. So that was uh, Mayor Hrib's offense to the Russians. Uh, the next guy is a mayor named Andrej Kolar, who is the mayor of the uh, 6th Municipal District in Prague. And as far as I can tell, uh, without getting too deep into the woods... Uh, the municipal districts in Prague are kind of like wards in Chicago. Uh, they're bigger than neighborhoods, but smaller than the city itself or than the bigger sort of um, almost legislative district looking things. So there's like three layers of government in Prague. He's in the middle one. And uh, he uh, had the audacity to remove the statue of Marshal Konev from a park in his district. His district, by the way, includes... A lot of Russian restaurants and a lot of houses owned by Russian nationals, and it uh, uh, includes uh, the Russian embassy. And so uh, they may have had their eye on Andrej Kolar for a lot of reasons, but he didn't want the statue of Marshal Konev standing there, and he took advantage of- and, and for the of, listeners, uh, Marshal Konev is? Marshal Konev was uh, the second-in-command, basically, of Zhukov. He's the guy that drove the Red Army's tanks into Czechoslovakia in 1945, 
and who also went and scouted uh, Prague in 1968 so that the Red Army could drive their tanks back in in uh, 1968 and crush the Prague Spring. So he is, um, uh, in addition to being a uh, instrument of Stalinist imperialist terror, he is also uh, kind of a jerk. So they didn't want a statue of Konev standing there and they tore it down. And this, they sort of took advantage of the beginning of uh, the, uh, of the quarantine to do, or the, or the beginning of sort of the, the, the early panic because the, uh, uh, they just sort of went ahead and did it without asking anybody. And that angered, uh, the president of the Czech Republic, who we will get to after our third mayor, who's a guy named Pavel Novotny. And he is in the ODS party. Uh, and he is the mayor of Reporizia. And, uh, Reporizia is a municipal district in Western Prague. And he, erected a monument instead of tearing one down to the Vlazov army and the Vlazov army uh, for people who don't know was a, a group uh, under a general named Nikolai Vlazov who was captured by the Germans during Barbarossa and who said hey Germans uh, you know who hates Stalin me and you we should team up and you should give me all of the Russian POWs to make an army with and the Germans said not a chance. Are we going to put you in charge of an army? And then in 1944, when they were kind of running out of armies, they said, hey, is that guy Vlazov still hanging around? Let's give him an <laughs> army and see what happens. About this. Yeah, there was something. It's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in a folder. Look at the folders, Himmler. And so they uh, found uh, Vlazov's folder. They gave him an army. Uh, they put him into battle uh, on the Oder River. He uh, held off the, the, the Red Army uh, for a bit of time and then uh, insisted that all of the Russian uh, soldiers be put under his independent command. For some reason, the Wehrmacht thought this was a good idea. So they did. The Wehrmacht, not famously thinking of very good ideas at this point in the war, I guess. And so the instant that he was uh, able to do that, he takes his army and marches it south to Czechoslovakia at the time to try to surrender to the Americans. And while uh, on his way to Czechoslovakia, however, decides to fight the Wehrmacht for possession of Prague. And as the uh, Red Army is coming at Prague uh, from uh, the one side, uh, Vlazov thinks, if I attack the Wehrmacht, I can take Prague and I can then surrender it to the Americans and I'll have a bargaining chip. And Vlazov's men fight bravely against the Nazis after having fought bravely with the Nazis. So there you go, Vlazov. And he surrenders them to the Americans who immediately turn him back over to Stalin because that's the kind of uh, bad attitude that we had in the day. So, uh, Vlazov is, uh, I, I guess you'd say a fraught figure, but to a certain stripe of Prague politician, he seems like a great guy to set up a statue to, uh, because, you know, we don't care what else he did, but in Prague, he's our hero. And, uh, the Russians, you think they didn't like taking down the Marshal Konev statue. Oh my goodness. There was uh, diplomatic protests. Uh, I think the Duma, uh, the, the Russian parliament formed an investigative committee to look into the Konev statue removal and, uh, the Vlazov statue building. So it was kind of a big high level steam about all this monumenting in uh, Western Prague. And this suggests a, a really fast, uh, statue erection because normally, you know, the statues, you, you don't just, you know, go to the uh, monument store and pick out a, a pre-existing statue to a historical figure of some controversy. You've got to do a lot of planning and stuff. So my theory is that if you were in Eastern Europe, you got really good at building statues to order in a hurry <laughs> <laughs> and moving them around and hiding them in garages, uh, because the last thing you wanted to be is the, the last guy with the Beria statue standing. And then you look like a like a, I mean, last year's sneakers are nothing to, to the problems you get yourself into with that kind of behavior. So I assume they, they laid on, on deep, powerful, ancient Czech memories of changing statues out in a hurry and were able to jump on that. Right. And, at, and is it Bulgaria where they are detouring Soviet era statues into like the Avengers and stuff? Like yeah. They're, they're, they're painting them into, into cool uh, public art things, basically to, to get tourism and also to sort of cock a snook at the, at the Russians, um, which is good fun. Good and, fun until uh, the poisoning starts. Well, it is, but I think repainting is not quite so bad as pulling things down. And all of this, as I have alluded, uh, has angered the president of the Czech Republic, uh, Milos Zeman. Uh, he is an independent. He was formerly the Social Democratic Party, which was the sort of successor party to the communists. 
and he won uh, elections after uh, Václav Havel and Václav Klaus, uh, who, of course, were uh, center right. And the the pendulum swings back even in Czechoslovakia. And he's been president, I think, for two terms now. Uh, and uh, in fairness to Milos Zeman, he was turfed out of the Communist Party in 1968 or in 1970, technically, because of his opposing the part where Russians drive tanks into your city. So... We have to give him his credit there, but in every other way, he's a soft worm like truckler to the Ruskies. And, um, uh, that is his big sort of political, his, his foreign policy is we don't need to rush into anything. The Czech Republic can be friends to all nations, especially big, rich nations, uh, like Russia and China. And, uh, obviously, uh, the other parties by and large are pro NATO, pro EU, and don't want any of this nonsense. I guess technically, um, I believe Pavel Novotny's party is anti EU, but is still pro uh, NATO. So, uh, the general outline of this begins to look like maybe the BIS is trying to send a little signal to President Zeman to say, stop being nice to the Russians or else something bad might happen and something bad is going to be left artfully unspecified because we're an intelligence service and that's how we do things. So you can either say, yep, the Russians are attempting to sort of extend their poisoning footprint and send a signal that former uh, satellite states are no longer allowed to just put up statues willy nilly or the BIS is made all of this stuff up, leaked it to the press just to embarrass and weaken President Zeman, because goodness knows no intelligence service has ever done that to their democratically <laughs> elected president before or since. And uh, maybe it's kind of a little of both that they found a possible plot against one of the mayors, blew it up into a big plot against all three mayors. Maybe it was a Russian mob thing. I don't know if any of these mayors have got other situations going on. Pavel Novotny. Uh, specifically seems to be a bit of a trouble magnet, a bit of a rambunctious populist. And those guys often are in bed with surprising sorts of people. Uh, so who can say it's a, it's a fun situation as long as you're not eating rice and in your mayoral office, I guess. Right. Because as culture wars go, uh, escalating a dispute over statues into poisoning, uh, seems like a, a, a big step, uh, even for today's Russia. It does. Uh, that, um, you might mm -hmm. expect them to launch a hacking initiative or release Compromat, but uh, uh, it does seem like uh, weird that it escalated to a potential murder. Yeah, to triple uh, mayor poisoning seems strong. And again, the Russians, I don't want to say they've had things their own way in Prague, but the Russians have been very successfully utilizing Prague as an intelligence source. Uh, because these political divisions exist in the Czech Republic. And so they can always get someone who is got a short term reason to oppose uh, one of their opponents to do them a favor, look the other way, cut them a break, drop a dime, whatever it takes. And for them to jeopardize that by poisoning a bunch of mayors, which is the sort of thing that one assumes would even get Milos Zeman uh, back on the side of righteousness, uh, that, that seems a very own goalie for the FSB, maybe not for Putin per se, but, but it's, it, it, it's a, it's a bit of a bridge, right. I would say. Um, the Chinese similarly have, you know, sort of a playground in Prague. Uh, they, they use it as a way to get into, uh, NATO, NATO communications and, 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 and NATO operations. And then also, uh, they've got the same interest in, in the Czech Republic that they have in all kinds of countries of getting the 5G contracts for Huawei so that they can basically do their own NSA and spy on everybody's electronic communications. So the, the, the Chinese may be sitting there thinking, what are the Russians doing? They're going to ruin it for everybody. Or uh, this may be a, a, a big double, double bluff in which the Chinese are hanging the Russians out to dry so that uh, everyone in Central Europe remembers there's a new dragon in town and it's not Russia. Right. And as we know from history and the newspaper, just because something would be incredibly stupid if it was happening doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, so uh, this seems like a great premise for a uh, a role playing uh, scenario. Uh, I'm thinking for some reason statuary makes me think of uh, a fantasy setting uh, where you know your task uh, as the adventurers is to uh, sneak into the opposing nation and uh, uh, take down their uh, their statue to the uh, oppressor figure, uh, and so you're uh, 
going and, uh, you know, the, the goofiest version of that is, you know, you've been tasked to uh, take down Sauron's uh, statue, uh, knowing that Sauron's remaining uh, revanches will uh, come after you. Uh, it may well be in a fantasy setting that the uh, statues that have psychic resonance also have magical power. So that is an act of sabotage uh, against the enemy that is uh, that is useful. But uh, a more uh, subtle version, I guess, would be that, uh, um, you know, maybe that uh, that statue is on top of the crypt of a uh, of a vampire who uh, does not uh, want their uh, magical security system uh, dealt with. So that could bring you into uh, sort of a Knight's Black Agent situation. Or this could just be the kind of not completely quotidian, but interesting enough uh, mission that your Knight's Black Agent's characters are on to begin with. And then, uh, you know, that draws them into the vampire uh, story, uh, even though it may only be tangentially related to it. I mean, when I see three different mayors of three different political persuasions, all sequestered, I think this is a classic ABC situation. Someone in either the BIS or in maybe the FSB is interested in one of those mayors, but they're interested for a reason that would be super obvious if they only took them out. And so they have to have some cover mayors and give a reason for why all three of them would be grabbed. And so that makes me think rather than it being a, 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 a an overt political thing, it's got to be something covert and sneaky. Maybe it's magic. Maybe it's vampires. Maybe with statues running around. Uh, Pavel Novotny, for example, since he's the, the sort of the wild card here. And as you say, put up a monument in jig time. Uh, maybe he's got a, uh, a an old a golem worker. Uh, from Prague's ancient golemry establishment. And he's uh, put him to work building statues that have, as you say, magic power. And if you put up a statue to the Vlazov army, then that very much amplifies anti-communism and possibly uh, freelance doing things of the sort that might appeal to Pavel Novotny. And so if uh, the, the Czech anti-magic unit just grabbed him, then the golem guy scampers. So they are, they've grabbed all the mayors because they're really looking for the golem guy. And that's sort of, you know, I, I think of it as a, as a, as a, as a classic ABC. And so you can pick any of these guys. I mean, Zdenek Rib is very much the highest profile of them. And so he's almost certainly the distraction. But I'm sure that, uh, if, if one dug into Andrej Kolar, one would find all manner of, of fun possibilities for him. And the sixth municipal district, as I say, is the Russian embassy one. So maybe it's a, a thing where he happened to be, you know, uh, out on a, on a, on a fundraiser. And he saw a vampire shadow that he shouldn't have seen. And so they've got him and they're sweating him to remove that information from his mind. But while they do that, they have to have a reason that everyone dropped out. And that's why they've got this cover story about a Russian poisoner. Right. And of course, if you're doing a, a feng shui scenario, uh, you don't need to explain why there's a battle over uh, psychically important statuary. They're, they're feng shui sites. And so uh, these are... Uh, what the characters are fighting over, that's, that's exactly. the overt thing. The uh, control of uh, uh, psychic power and chi flow uh, is exactly resident in uh, stuff like that. And that can give you your uh, either your closing or your opening uh, big old fight in uh, beautiful downtown Prague. Yes. Uh, the unbearable lightness of Wusha. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I think it's time for us to uh, make a wire work leap over this next commercial and see uh, where exactly we land. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast unpoisoned alongside such stalwart Patreon backers as... Randy Shep, Ryan Lasseter. Tenant Reed. Chris McLaren. And Rich Spainauer. The Nodding Tulpas, the Carved Potatoes, the Walruses Escaping, or not, welcome us into that most ad hoc, but superbly outfitted of huts, the T-Shirt Justification Hut. Robin, you, of course, are are uh, one of the prime impresarios behind our T-Shirt business, and a recent excursion of yours has attracted the attention of beloved Patreon backer Michael Manivelle, who asks, how would you meaning us, go about incorporating the Valhalla Cat into different RPGs. The Valhalla Cat t-shirt uh, that, that you made, a beautiful item, yes. uh, worn by the Cognoscenti, the elite uh, of all sorts. And, and the most gratuitous of shirts. Yeah. Instagram influencers are wearing them. TikTok stars. Yeah. It's, uh, it's become the, the patron animal of the uh, Pelgrane Discord. It was, uh, I think, two hours uh, since the Discord was created when someone decided they needed a... Uh, a Valhalla cat emoji. And sometimes, uh, as the existence of this hut suggests, I will create a t-shirt justification hut in order to justify creating a shirt. But for Valhalla cat, I just saw a cool image, messed around with some filters, and uh, came up with a, a version that made the, the original photograph uh, even cooler. And, and the rest is history. So you can check that out at tpublic.com. Ken Robin and... Uh, uh, with their ever-expanding array of different merchandise. You can not only have it on a shirt or on a mug, but you can get an, a magnet. They've got buttons now. Uh, they're even doing non-surgical uh, safety uh, masks at this point. So you can get a a, a uh, awesome-looking, uh, cute, yet tough-looking cat in a uh, Wagnerian helmet uh, in order to uh, discourage people from getting within more than six feet of you, just as a cat would. And so, uh, Ken, I believe you've uh, researched... Uh, this uh, this original image. Yes, I have. Because um, when Michael Manival asks, how would I go about incorporating the Valhalla cat into different RPGs? The answer is research. Do a lot of research first. Uh, fortunately for me, I guess, less so for poor Michael, um, there's not a lot known. It's uh, a photograph that's in the Library of Congress, according to the Library of Congress entry. It's uh, called Brunhilde is the name of the photograph, possibly also the name of the cat. Uh, the photograph was taken the 12th of June, 1936, by a fellow named Adolf E. Weidhaas. Uh, and he apparently had his photography establishment in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and possibly more Googling than needs to be done for this bit. Uh, could not uncover Adolf E. Weidhaas in any other context, so he dropped into our lives and will be known forever as the originator of Valhalla Cat. Right, and, and thankfully does not seem to have copyrighted it. Thus. Right, or he certainly didn't renew the copyright in the 50s when he would have had to for something made in the 1930s to uh, not be in the public domain. But Library of Congress says it's in the public domain, as does Wikimedia Commons, and that's like having the Supreme Court say it, really. So uh, when I uh, start to think about uh, genres uh, that have cool warrior cats in them, obviously, you know, the... A deep, dark Cthulhu mythos does not have uh, warrior cats because... Uh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, they have warrior cats. Does. They're in the dreamlands. So uh, Valhalla Cat can be your, your uh, patron uh, awesome cat who uh, who dwells uh, in the in the dreamlands and uh, appears before the player characters wearing the helmet and spurs them on uh, to battle against uh, the moon beasts or uh, perhaps the... Uh, the Zugs or the Zugs or uh, whatever manner of uh, enemy awaits in, in the dreamlands. And, you know, if you have a kooky, pulpier version of uh, Trail of Cthulhu or Call of Cthulhu running, you know, they, the player characters could figure out a way to uh, summon the Halakat into their realm. And in their realm, it could just seem like an ordinary house cat, albeit one who enjoys wearing a hat. Which is a dead giveaway that it's not a hat from a cat from this world. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the the obvious one. Of course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that there are several different role playing games where you can play cats. Yes, uh, including Magical Kitties, and there's one called Cat. So, you could uh, borrow the image of Valhalla Cat 
either with the cool filter or the original photograph and use it as your uh, character emblem and stand it up. And uh, what further explanation do you need except that you're a, a Wagnerian uh, a warrior cat? So in Ashen Stars, of course, uh, that cat could uh, seem to be an ordinary uh, house pet on the deck of your ship. But in an emergency, it will turn out to be a sentient or a shapeshifter or a robot or an android or um, something uh, full of usefulness. It could be, you know, uh, like uh, canine in Doctor Who. It could uh, turn out to have a big fat laser inside its head. That could always be useful. Ken, where, where else are we going to use Valhalla Cat? Um, Valhalla Cat obviously can uh, be a mysterious sort of a image that, that appears. I mean, I think immediately you, you think of a, of, of a cat in a hat, you think of surrealism. So possibly uh, the act of, of photographing the warrior cat, the Valkyrie cat opens up its own little pinhole into the dreamlands. We talked about the dreamlands on the one side, but maybe it's on the other side. And maybe it's a dreamhounds uh, type uh, situation where uh, Adolf E. Weidhaus, if that is his real name, was uh, attempting to reify something out of the dreamlands or, or, or shape it himself, uh, creating a, 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 a cat uh, image that he could uh, manipulate within the dreamlands. Uh, that leads you to the thought of Valkyrie cat as a tulpa. And it's like a little tiny baby tulpa because although it's sort of referred to a lot, you see it in occasional little, you know, Hey, here are some 10 funny images, uh, listicles. It, it doesn't have a gigantic legend around it, like the pterosaur photograph or, or some of the other, or the Bigfoot photograph. So it's like a baby tulpa. And this gives you the opportunity to, to see it grow in power. And that could be in an unknown armies game. If it's, uh, it got its own agenda, but it's a tulpa that is, one could imagine a street level crew thinking they could, they could wrangle and control, or it could be an esoterror op that it's an early esoterror op by some Wagnerian, um, uh, esoterrorist in the thirties to try and create cognitive dissonance when people conflate, uh, darling little house cats with the, of uh, Valkyrie, uh, princess, uh, Brunhilde. Uh, maybe it worked. Maybe it didn't work. Maybe it was shut down. Uh, by the uh, Order Veritatis in the 30s, and now it's beginning to come untangled again uh, because the the veil was not completely uh, airtight uh, back in 1936. Um, because after all, we we know when the photo was taken and by whom, and that's just enough information for someone to try and recreate it. And uh, because uh, Brunhilde, of course, is she's a Valkyrie, um, she's a, a, a warrior queen. Uh, she gets in a, a heroic quarrel and tries to have the hero murdered, Sigurd or Siegfried, depending. And um, she uh, basically acts as the instigator of a lot of fire and drama. So maybe that's the notion is that this Brunhilde cat is meant to sort of create some sort of a uh, big mystical uh, throwdown. And the act of becoming obsessed with the Valkyrie cat is what draws you in and, and you, you become a Siegfried character and are being uh, pulled into a Wagnerian uh, myth, not necessarily actual uh, Volks, the Volsunga saga, but the Wagner version. So you can sort of play with all kinds of little layers of that. Um, and of course, a cat in a, in a cool helmet might just be, you know, in a D and D situation. They might be a tabaxi. They might be a cat person. You don't know what their body looks like. All we can see is their head and shoulders in their cool helmet. So maybe it's an image of a, of a cat person from another universe that sort of popped in, uh, to, to ours in the thirties, or that it's an image you can recycle and, uh, use as the mysterious, uh, war goddess of the Tabakshi. And they all worship the, the Brunhilde cat and are being led by this uh, warrior cult into more and more acts of, you know, scratching furniture and tearing up uh, computer cords and whatever else uh, cats get up to in D&D land. Just as an image, uh, because it is uh, both tough and adorable, it could be the telltale image of a an or icon of a revolutionary group. So it, that could be the uh, image that you used as your uh, insurgent cell in the aftermath setting of the Yellow King role-playing game where... Uh, you know, you just had little stickers of this or fridge magnets, or you move them around. And this is how uh, people knew that you were a member of a cell and knew how to contact you. And so if you went down an alley and you saw a uh, handbell with just uh, the Valkyrie cat on it, uh, you uh, knew you were in uh, friendly territory and uh, that uh, it, it's uh, sort of a, a gnomic image. It doesn't really reveal itself. It's not 
overtly uh, political. It's not the actual symbol of the resistance. And so uh, you could it would last longer uh, than other signs that the uh, that the Hus, the uh, secret police were uh, on the lookout for. Uh, it could also be because uh, it is so uh, benign and adorable. It could be a a symbol that you use uh, against uh, various forms of uh, Carcosan magic. It could be a ward of some kind, uh, which, of course, in the way that magic works in the Elder King role-playing game, as we'll find in the upcoming book, uh, Black Star Magic, being able to wield that still requires you to have a shock card in hand. That's kind of a problem. But still, you know, you could go to the uh, your favorite merch site, uh, get your magnets, get your stickers, get your uh, small side wall art, and uh, they might afford some degree of protection to you. So they might provide a, a bonus for your uh, sanctuary. And again, uh, f- the Feng Shui characters, the dragons, uh, if you don't want people to know that you're in the dragons, you could fool them with uh, this very draconic looking, uh, awesome uh, uh, kitty cat uh, symbol. And again, uh, we all know that uh, the dragons love merch. And uh, they might very well, uh, it's just the sort of thing they uh, could do. It might be the symbol of their band. Uh, they might be like Josie and the Pussycats. They might be both international uh, problem solvers and have a band that plays, uh, which is their cover for going around the world uh, protecting Feng Shui sites. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, Valkyrie Cats or Valhalla Cats would be good names for a band. I think either of those would work. I think that uh, when we have gotten into band or album, though, we're kind of out of RPGs and perhaps... I, I think I see uh, the Valhalla cat scratching at the door. If if uh, she wants to go out, I guess we have to go out, don't we, Robin? Yes, indeed. So I think this uh, this T-shirt, which has been up for months and months, is already justified. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, where uh, we'll pause on the landing to uh, wave to the portrait of Madame Blavatsky. Of course, it continues to be a glowering portrait. So we slink on in past her withering gaze, uh, because uh, it, she's going to have more to say in this segment. We may need even to bring her into the main uh, parlor, where waits for us the consulting occultist, because uh, beloved Patreon backer Fred Kish would like us to uh, review and profile Nicholas Rorick. He was a painter, a writer, an archaeologist, an architect, and, of course, for our purposes here, a theosophist. He was born in uh, Russia in 1874. He died in India in 1947. Uh, So he uh, spans the era of Call of Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu. And boy, is he full of scenario hooks. And not only that, uh, but in case you were wondering uh, what his pedigree is, his paintings are name-checked in the Mountain of Madness. So Lovecraft was aware of uh, Nicholas uh, Rorick. I'm sure he tut-tutted and disapproved at the whole theosophy because, of course, he found it overly cheerful. Uh, so, Ken, where do we start unpacking the vast source of uh, weird uh, story hooks that is Nicholas Rorick? 
I mean, we can begin by saying that uh, the Roricks, after realizing that they were not going to get to go back to Russia, uh, although his initial uh, white enthusiasm waned as it became a losing deal, uh, he still didn't want to go back to Russia. He moved to New York City and established the Nicholas Rorick Museum, as well as the American Agni Yoga Society. Uh, Lovecraft visited the Nicholas Rorick Museum many, many times and uh, saw... Uh, the, the, the paintings of strange Himalayan landscapes, uh, that were up there. And the reason that Nicholas Rorick painted strange Himalayan landscapes is because he was going to the strange Himalayas. He, uh, went on the Rorick Asian expedition from 1925 through 1929, began in, um, uh, India and then went basically all around the, uh, Himalayas, all up the Altais and the uh, Tian Shan, and into the Gobi Desert, possibly even into Siberia, wound up in Moscow, and attempted, at uh, that date, to suck up to the Russians, to the Bolsheviks, uh, to the commies, and say, hey, I've stopped being uh, a white activist, an anti-Bolshevik activist, and wouldn't it be great if the Cheka, or the MGB, I guess as it was then, um, would hook me up with some, I don't know, guns and guys to help me on my expedition. Right. And and he, he did have a some bona fides because he initially after the revolution was part of a group that tried to sort of connect the existing art scene in Russia uh, into uh, the new power structure. But of course, we all know what being a moderate artist gets you in the teens in, yeah. in Russia. Um, so he was a, a symbolist painter. Uh, this connects him uh, once again to the Yellow King era. He's working a little later than uh, someone like uh, Odilon Radon, the French symbolist who we talked about last week. Um, and his paintings are very bright and colorful. There's bright pinks, there's bright blues. Canadian listeners might uh, be reminded of uh, the iconic Canadian painter Lauren Harris, uh, who's specialized in uh, snowy mountains and icebergs. Uh, and uh, there's even sort of a similar line style. Uh, Rorick is even more overtly mystical than Harris, who, as a good Canadian, is only latently uh, mystical. And mm-hmm. sometimes his paintings will have figures of uh, monks in the snow or a very magical looking polar bears and stuff. And so uh, even just the paintings alone are already uh, sort of a rich source that uh, you can pull up and use when your characters go to the Himalayas. So he's uh, already produced a lot of uh, fabulous uh, art uh, for you to put in the Slack channel for your players. Yeah, the Soviet secret police did in fact uh, hook him up. He uh, got backing of some sort and exactly what sort is a mystery because the guy who backed him got purged eventually. And he was sent off into the Gobi Desert to continue his uh, expedition. And at some point, he decided that what he was doing was looking for the lost city, the mystical city, the invisible city of Shambhala, uh, which is the sacred, holy Buddhist uh, city that exists to spread peace and, and enlightenment all over the world. And what the KGB was doing looking for that, or the MGB was doing looking for that, uh, who can say? Probably doesn't bear examination. But they, uh, they, they backed him. They were, uh, all tied up. Rorick completely vanishes, uh, for a year between summer of 1927 and summer of 1928. No one knows what happened to him. Maybe he got, uh, killed or, or, uh, eaten by a glacier, but he pops back out. Uh, and gets nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize because his mission has been such a huge success, uh, although he did not, as far as we know, discover Shambhala. Um, then he begins immediately attempting to establish uh, international protective accords for cultural sites so that when you have a war, uh, you won't blow up a, a temple or a significant ruin or whatever. Um, and uh, the first version of sort of the uh, the UN Cultural Protection Charter gets signed by the Pan American Union, uh, signing the Rorick Pact. And as you can see, it worked because no two countries in uh, the Western Hemisphere have gone to war over an arche- archaeological or cultural site. So 
Success once again. Yes, no one's ever been poisoned over a th- or threatened with poisoning over a statue ever since. Uh, certainly not in not not in the Western Hemisphere. Yes. and then even more fun, uh, Henry Wallace, the mystically minded Secretary of Agriculture of the United States, also a commie, hires commissions Bax Rorick to go to Mongolia again and Manchuria and look for super strains of wheat and other plants that can grow in desert soil because this is during the Dust Bowl. And the theory is if you can get plants that can uh, grow in the Gobi Desert, they can grow in Kansas and Oklahoma. And the expedition does indeed collect a bunch of plants. Um, they uh, go pestering uh, locals and find uh, antique uh, Buddhist manuscripts, termas, bring those out, and they have a general good time of it. Uh, the question has always been raised, were they also kind of spying out what the Japanese were up to maybe on the DL or was it just that Henry Wallace was a weirdo? And uh, since Henry Wallace's political career was overturned by the exposure of his letters to Rorick uh, later on in life in which he addressed him as dear guru, uh, maybe it's just that Henry Wallace was a crazy person and uh, was doing it as a secret search for Shambhala again. Right. And and the dear guru uh, thing brings in the part that we've uh, s- rather skimmed over, which is the consulting occultist part of this story, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is that uh, Rorick's wife, Helena, uh, a, a, a redolent name in this sphere, if there ever was one, uh, introduced him to uh, not only the, to Hindu mysticism, but uh, also theosophy. And uh, she was a, a psychic and a medium in contact with the Mahatmas, which uh, those of you who remember uh, our fr- previous discussions of theosophy are the um, magical secret beings uh, who are uh, running the show behind the scenes uh, through uh, the assistance of uh, people like, hey, the Roricks. And so Wallace himself, a mystic, of course, uh, was uh, wired in uh, through that. And this explains uh, why we're talking about him in this segment. Uh, something that is not overtly, but let us say covertly uh, mystical, at least uh, in your uh, call or Trail of Cthulhu campaigns, is that in addition to his many other hats, and some of those hats made him look like a wizard, we have to say, um, he uh, was a designer for Diaghilev's uh, Ballet Russe. And among the the most famous productions uh, that he worked on was Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which in the uh, early 20s uh, completely changed Paris. It was a big uh, a scandal. It was a riot when first performed. And uh, uh, you may know it now as the music that the dinosaurs die to in Disney's Fantasia. Uh, so it was pretty quickly uh, the Stravinsky score uh, gathered up into the uh, pop culture with its occultic uh, ritual significance somewhat uh, uh, set to the side there. But it's called Rite of Spring, people. It's called a rite. And uh, Rorick uh, was uh, instrumental to uh, to providing the uh, the visuals that went with that. Yeah, I, I guess in this uh, in in a, in a different similar context, his patron in or possible patron because we don't know again got purged uh, in the uh, GPU was uh, a guy named Gleb Boki who was purged in 1937, as I mentioned, and at the time was accused of drinking human blood. So Nicholas Rorick is possibly question mark, working for a vampire uh, when he's looking for Shambhala. And of course, uh, uh, Gleb Boki was himself a theosophist and esoteric Buddhist, I guess is how you might have described him at the time. If you were daring to describe the guy who literally ran the gulags uh, with a thing that would probably have gotten him shot for counter-revolutionary superstition. But he was a big fan of the counter-revolutionary superstition, it turned out. So Rorick has got, I mean, he's basically got a, a tendril in every single thing you might want to be doing a adventure in the twenties or thirties about. He's got connections to the uh, GPU. He's got connections to the American government. He's got connections to HP Lovecraft. We don't know if at one point Lovecraft comes into the museum and there's Nicholas Rorick, you know, kicking back and drinking hot tea. And he chats uh, because uh, occultists are uh, renowned chatters. And Lovecraft, of course, was also a renowned gibble gabbler. So maybe uh, he shared some occult wisdom that he'd learned. And uh, Lovecraft is writing on me go, you say, tell me more. <laughs> So, so there's any number of, of wonderful uh, tendrils and hooks, in addition to the fact that uh, Nicholas Rourke has a really good wizard beard. And right. I think that a lot of people, you know, they, they 
they scant that in these modern times, Robin. And it's nice to have a shaman, wizard, magic, theosophist, archaeologist, weirdo, spy who has a proper wizard beard. And the fact that his art is actually very, very inspirational and evocative uh, as well. He's a terrific fellow. Right. And, and it's a testament to uh, his vast richness and complexity uh, that he is an architect and you haven't even mentioned that yet. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. He he designed uh, the Talish Kino Church. Its design is so radical that the uh, uh, Eastern Church refused to consecrate it because, of course, they're called the Orthodox Church for a reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's 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 hashtag branding. <laughs> yes. They they uh, they weren't having any of that uh, non-Euclidean church uh, building. Um, and also, uh, he was influenced by something called the Dove Book. Uh, which maybe uh, we should do another whole segment on, which is a Russian medieval ballad full of riddles, uh, which uh, is also uh, a source of uh, mystical illumination. Have you run across the Dove book in your researches? I have not run across the Dove book, but I'm fascinated to dig into it more. Um, I'm uh, well, sure that it's great. Let's let's put a pin in that. Let's do a future Dove book segment. And uh, I since this is already turning into another segment, and not only another segment, but one you haven't researched yet, I think it's time for us to bid a hasty retreat across the vast, snowy, beautiful, pink-lit uh, mountains, and uh, maybe we'll go hang out with a polar bear or something. Right, or maybe we'll disappear for a year in Tibet and then come back with nothing at all wrong with us. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Aspigown. Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Give Valhalla Cat a scritch by joining such beloved backers as... Ludovic Shabant. The Monster Talk Podcast. Phil Groff. Simon Proctor. And Ariel Celeste. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest design enlists Edgar Allan Poe to celebrate the only failure worth rolling for, interesting failure. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>